White Rabbits. The Radio Derb is on the air this Friday, December 1st, hosted here by your superstitiously genial host, John Derbyshire. To listeners not au courant with British folklore, White Rabbits should be the first words you utter to another human being on the first day of the month. If you don't want to be dogged by bad luck all month, which I don't. So, greetings to one and all. I've had a fun week. Drove down to West Virginia Monday, stayed overnight in Berkeley Springs Monday and Tuesday, and took part in our Giving Tuesday show Tuesday evening at vdare.com headquarters in the castle. There is an excellent video of the Tuesday evening event at the vdare.com website, to which I direct your attention. I should caution you, though, that it is the entire event, three and a half hours long, so you'll be needing a comfortable chair and a bottle of something refreshing to hand if you want to watch the whole thing. The intro music by itself, even before you see any of us speaking, is 15 minutes. It's a very lovely 15 minutes, though. Mainly those Polish Christmas carols that I used as sign-off here on Radio Derb at Christmas 2019. Thanks once again to our friend and contributor Tom Piatak for those beautiful carols. I should apologise up front for this podcast being somewhat shorter than usual. My hangover from Tuesday evening lasted all week. (laughs) No, just kidding. It has been an unusually busy week, though, and I'm way behind with everything. In partial recompense, my monthly diary should be posted on the vdare.com website sometime this weekend. So if you don't have as much as usual of my spoken words to listen to, you have more of my written words to read. Okay, on with the motley. Yeah, 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 thank you, sir, thank you. I'm pretty sure that Thursday night's debate between Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and California Governor Gavin Newsom was not the most important event of the week, but it was the most comment-worthy. Actually, the first thing to be said about it is that it was too long. When I was training to be a teacher back in the Upper Paleolithic, we were instructed that nobody can sit and listen to another person talk for more than 45 minutes. For me, that is also as long as I can stay awake when two politicians are talking. By a supreme effort of will, I actually held out for a full hour. They were still talking. I don't know how long the event went on, but I had had enough. To our politicians, I commend, not, I am sure, for the first time, the words of the great Calvin Coolidge. 
On being elected president of the Massachusetts Senate in 1914, Coolidge's acceptance speech was just 43 words long. Quote, in its entirety. Honorable senators, my sincerest thanks I offer you. Conserve the firm foundations of our institutions. Do your work with the spirit of a soldier in the public service. Be loyal to the Commonwealth and to yourselves. And be brief. Above all, be brief. End quote. The debate at least gave us clear impressions of the two governors. To me, those impressions didn't differ much from the ones I had previously held. Ron DeSantis came across, as he has before, as a normal guy with sensible ideas. His great strength politically is his record as chief executive of his state. Florida's doing really well, especially by comparison with California. Lower crime and unemployment, less government bossiness on things like gun ownership, way lower taxes, better education results, and so on. DeSantis's drawback, of course, is a lack of charisma. Charisma is not a thing normal guys have. Politicians need to have it in order to catch and hold the attention of voters, to distract us from the busyness of ordinary life. We normal guys are low charisma. We don't dazzle, astonish, nor even much charm you. Sometimes we forget our lines or we take a wrong turn before speedily self-correcting while hoping nobody noticed. That's normal guy Ron DeSantis. On proper rhetorical principles, as a fair reporter, and as Radio Derb listeners know, fairness is my middle name, I should now sketch the pros and cons of Gavin Newsom. The only pros I can see are presentational. For a 56-year-old guy, Newsom looks young and energetic. He's bright and articulate. He's pretty much always smiling. That doesn't do it for me. It charms a lot of people, though, and I wouldn't think the worse of them for it. I know I'm hard to charm. Thousands of salesmen will testify to that. Newsom's problem is his record as chief executive of his state, and before that, for seven years back in the 2000s, as mayor of San Francisco. State and city are both in a sorry condition, especially by comparison with Florida. This debate was occasionally briefly illustrated with clips showing comparative statistics, national, Florida, California, on key issues like crime, schooling and taxes. The statistics were from very respectable sources. They all heavily favoured Florida. 
Newsom responded to them by looking straight at the camera and saying, That's not true, or something equivalent. Impressive that wasn't. How much any of this matters, how much the debate itself matters, depends on what you think these guys are trying for. DeSantis is an open contender for the Republican presidential nomination, but on current polling he's not likely to get it. Does he still think he has a chance? Was he hoping the debate would improve that chance? Or has he totally given up and is just laying some foundations for 2028? Newsom isn't officially running for anything. With Joe Biden having trouble staying upright and Kamala Harris about as popular as eczema, he may nurse hopes of being the guy who steps into the breach at the last minute. Or he may himself have 2028 in mind. Some of his responses to DeSantis in the debate were so frivolous and off-point, I found myself wondering if perhaps Newsom's main motivation for the evening was just to have some fun. It's a weird election we're headed into, not like any other I can recall. I'm pretty much resigned to the expectation that I'll be voting for Trump again, although I would prefer DeSantis. And to the TV execs, let me just say, if it's one-on-one debates you're switching to, how about DeSantis against Haley? That I might stay awake for all the way through. Speaking of Nikki Haley, I see she's been busy collecting primary ballot access. She was on the GOP primary ballot in 21 states last time I looked. That's busy. Haley's getting major funding too, although some of it from odd sources. This week we heard that the billionaire Koch brothers, more precisely a political action network that they founded and they they finance, the Koch brothers have endorsed Ms. Haley. That means mucho dollars will be flowing into her primary campaigns. New York Times, November 28th, quote, Ms. Haley's campaign does not have the organisational strength that Mr. DeSantis does, thanks to work the super PAC affiliated with his campaign has been doing for much of the year. The endorsement from the super PAC established by the Koch brothers could help change that. It will give her access to a direct mail operation, field workers to knock on doors, and people making phone calls to prospective voters in Iowa and beyond. The group has money to spend on television advertisements as well. Policy-wise, the Koch brothers' endorsement is a bit odd. Haley is, as you've heard me grumbling for months now, a world saver. She wants what she calls a robust foreign policy. That means getting involved with other people's quarrels all over the world. 
militarily when we feel like it, for the promotion of liberty and democracy. The Koch brothers are open borders globalists, as Bernie Sanders famously told us eight years ago, but only in matters of economics. They don't want to liberate Tibet. The foreign policy their organizations promote, open borders aside, is almost America first. It's closer to Ron DeSantis than it is to Nikki Haley. So why are they supporting her? Because if they can push her through the primaries ahead of Trump and DeSantis, they figure she will have a better shot than would those guys at winning the general in November. Why do they think that? Because a lot of Democrats and independents would vote for her who would never vote for Trump or DeSantis. In fact, Haley seems to have been getting a lot of campaign funding from Democrat sources. New York Post, November 30th, quote, In a desperate bid to chip away at Donald Trump's odds for the GOP nomination, a coterie of DNC donors are sending checks to Haley, even as they continue to publicly voice support for Biden and push for his White House bid, sources said. End quote. It's not a new thing. Helping to boost fringe candidates of the other party is part of the game. It gives the mainstream candidates of your party a better shot at winning the general. New York Post again, quote, This time, donors say the approach is different since the aim is to present voters with two centrist candidates and keep a far-right candidate from winning, end quote. If we end up next November with Haley against Biden or Haley against Newsom or Haley against any other Democrat I can think of, except Joe Manchin, I will vote for Haley. It'll be with a heavy heart, though. And with determination to get to work building that bomb shelter in my backyard. Researching for this podcast, I did get one pleasant surprise. Let me work my way up to it. In last week's podcast, I mentioned in passing the U.S. Supreme Court's rejection of an appeal by Derek Chauvin, the cop who was restraining George Floyd when Floyd died back in 2020. The rejection of the appeal was not in itself very noteworthy. The Supremes reject the great majority of appeals. My podcast was wrapped up before the news came out that Chauvin had been stabbed by a fellow inmate at the federal prison in Arizona, where he is serving his 20-plus year sentences, both state and federal. How come he's serving his state sentence, as well as his federal sentence, in a federal prison? 
because of a plea deal he made with federal prosecutors. On his side of the deal, he would plead guilty. On their side, he would be allowed to serve his state sentence in a federal prison, along with the federal sentence. The motive there was that federal prisons are generally considered safer than state prisons. Whoops. I thought for this week's podcast I'd bring you up to date with any new information about Chauvin getting stabbed. Well, there isn't any. Not even Chauvin's family, nor even his attorneys, have been told anything more than that Chauvin survived the stabbing and is in stable condition. We, and the family, and the attorneys, don't even know whether he's conscious or not. And who done it? We have no clue. Or, rather, we have an indirect clue. We know it must have been a black guy, because, as folk wisdom has taught us for decades, if it was a white guy, they would have told us. They haven't. So, it was a black guy. So, we can add another cup of cruelty to the cruel, shameful story of Chauvin's show trial. Having failed to find out anything about the actual stabbing, I got to wondering what, if anything, it tells us about our prison system. In this case, our federal prison system. There was an illuminating article on that in Monday's New York Times. It turns out, according to the Times, that the Federal Bureau of Prisons is seriously underfunded. By Congress, that is. It further sounds, although the Times report is less explicit here, it further sounds that the Bureau is poorly managed. Sample quote, following some text about federal prisons being understaffed. Quote, the Federal Prisons Bureau has long been plagued by health and safety problems, physical and sexual abuse, corruption and high turnover in the top management ranks. Colette S. Peters, who took over as director of the Bureau of Prisons, in August 2022, has said that filling those vacancies was the Bureau's top priority. In a hearing of the Senate Judiciary Committee this September, she discussed steps she had taken to start overhauling the system and urged Congress to provide more funding. But Senate lawmakers criticised Ms Peters for not providing more information on fixing the system's problems, end quote. Here came my pleasant surprise. I'd been telling you for a while that black women are now top of the status totem pole. For any kind of high-prestige appointment, either government or private, a black woman is the first choice. Supreme Court nominee, black woman. President of Harvard, 
Black woman. So reading that New York Times story telling me that a certain Colette S. Peters took over as the director of the Bureau of Prisons in August 2022, I immediately thought to myself with an inward sigh, Oh, there's another one. When I went to Google Images to look her up, though, I learned that she is a white lady. I haven't been able to find out anything else about her, so possibly she has some other identitarian points that make up for her whiteness. I don't know. As it stands, though, at the point our cultural revolution has reached, as it stands, this was a comparatively conservative appointment. Just a year and a third into Ms Peter's tenure at the head of our federal prison system, it may be unfair to say it, but she doesn't seem to have made much of a dent in the Bureau's many problems. Staffing is the biggest one, and it's not all the fault of congressional underfunding either. Here's another quote from the New York Times, quote, About 21% of the 20,446 federal positions for corrections officers funded by Congress, amounting to 4,293 guards, were unfilled in September 2022, according to a report in March by the Justice Department's Inspector General's Office, end quote. It does seem to be a lousy job working in our federal prisons. State prison officers are better paid, so of course federal officers drift off to the nearest state establishment. We really do have a serious law and order problem. Not just in the streets with shoplifters, junkies, muggers, carjackers and rioters, but even in the prisons when criminals have been caught, judged, sentenced and incarcerated. Is there any chance Congress might address this? If they can spare the time from voting through another $5 billion for Ukraine? That is, of course, a rhetorical question. And now, our closing miscellany of brief items. Imprimis. I'm sorry, and I mean no disrespect, but when I see Nikki Haley's name in print, it always brings to mind Ricky Tiki Tavi. For listeners who didn't have a bookish English childhood, Ricky Tiki Tavi was the title of one of Rudyard Kipling's Jungle Book short stories. It was also the name of the story's main character, who was a mongoose. Quote from the story. It is the hardest thing in the world to frighten a mongoose, because he is eaten up from nose to tail with curiosity. The motto of all the mongoose family is Run and find out. And Ricky Tiki was a true mongoose. End quote. Run and find out. You see? 
I like to think that Nikki Haley read the story of Ricky Tikki Tavi in her childhood and adopted his motto. Run and find out. She's definitely running and we'll find out. Oh, did I mention this story takes place in India? Item. I can't resist telling the mongoose joke. The only one, so far as I know. The joke concerns a zoo manager. For some reason, his superiors have taken an interest in the mongoose. They've decided the zoo needs two of them, and they ask the manager to write to their suppliers. The guy obediently sits down and writes a letter. Dear sir, please send us two mongooses. It doesn't look right, though. So he bins the letter and tries again. Dear sir, please send us two mongoose. But that still doesn't look right. He bins that second letter and sits thinking for a while. Then, on a new sheet of paper, Dear sir, please send us a mongoose. P.S. Better make it two. Item. In last week's podcast, I mentioned the teachers' strike at Charlottesville High School in Virginia. The teachers staying home because of -of out-of-control student violence at the school. The violence is perpetrated by about 30 students out of the total 1,400. These 30 never attend class. They just roam the halls making trouble. My source there was a local newspaper report headlined, The kids are not all right. Violence, intruders and chaos at Charlottesville High School. Well, that brought an email from a listener who actually has a child at the school. With his permission, I shall just read you a slightly edited version of his email. Quote, The thing about CHS is that it's actually generally pretty well regarded. Diligent and disciplined kids can get a good education there. But it is hard to overstate what damage the coddling of the infamous 30 you mentioned in last week's Radio Derb has done to the school. A week before Thanksgiving were the fights that led to everything that followed. The teachers were finally so fed up by the lack of security, of sheer normalcy, that they engaged in a sick-out on Friday. The school later cancelled classes the Monday and Tuesday of Thanksgiving week as well. This week has been a farcical combination of cheap boosterism. Quote, don't let anyone tell you black knights can't come together to solve their problems. End quote. And some sotto voce muttering about increasing security. If they have a coherent plan to deal with kids aimlessly wandering the halls and not going to class, though, I have yet to hear it. It's a shame. 
My son is taking interesting classes with teachers who seem dedicated. But the last three years have been my first experience with public education. It has been every bit as dismaying as I expected. End quote. Thank you, sir. We should all be dismayed that, for reasons we all know well, our elected and appointed authorities are unable to address something as fundamental, as foundational to our civilization, as school discipline and safety. Item. When we post my November diary sometime this weekend, you will see that I have taken an interest in Elon Musk. One of Elon Musk's passions, probably rooted in the fact that he, like me, spent his early teen years reading science fiction authors like Ray Bradbury and Robert A. Heinlein, one of his passions is the colonization of Mars. Musk's ambition for his own rocket companies is that eventually they will transport the first human colonists to the Red Planet. Well, here's a husband and wife writing partnership setting out to burst Elon Musk's bubble. Zachary and Kelly Weinersmith have a book out titled A City on Mars. The title is ironic. The Weinersmiths don't think there is going to be any city on Mars. Not at any rate until another couple of centuries of technological advance have happened. I haven't read the book. I'm working here from the review in my November 25th edition of The Economist sample. There is the question of why anyone would want to go in the first place. Escaping an environmentally damaged Earth, or even simply having an insurance policy against the chance of nuclear annihilation or asteroid strike, may sound attractive. But Mars is actually far more horrid than any fate likely to be awaiting humanity's home planet. Even, probably, the aftermath of a nuclear exchange. End quote. From what I have learned about Musk, he is, to put it very mildly, not a guy who's easily deterred when he's set his heart on something. If he tries to sell you a ticket on his first Mars colonisation flight, though, you may be wise to decline. Item. Merriam-Webster has announced its Word of the Year, mainly based on the number of online searches for the word. The winner, the top word of 2023, is... Authentic. Authentic? Really? That's all I can manage this week, boys and girls. Apologies again for a somewhat truncated podcast. I wish you all a pleasant and productive weekend, decorating your Christmas tree, mailing off your Christmas cards and wrapping your presents. 
To sign us off, I shall fall back on more of Haydn's Derbyshire March number no. 2 from the main organ of Derby Cathedral. There will be more from Radio Derb next week. <laughs>